What's up, Summit Church? How's everybody doing this weekend? We good? Hey, it's too late, baby. We already locked the doors. You're in here, okay? I'm here. You're here. We're here. Let's just get in this together. Sound good? Awesome. Hey, you know what? I like feedback. I like a rowdy crowd. So right now, I just want you to look around at somebody and say, what's up? Go ahead and say what's up to them right now. There you go. Awesome. That was awkward, but not really. All right. Well, my, my, name, is J- my name is Jason Gaston, and uh, it is, it's a joy and an honor for me to, to stand in the pulpit uh, this weekend and to open up God's Word with you. Uh, it's a joy and an honor because um, it's a calling by God to, uh, for the leaders of the church to open up God's Word to encourage the church. And um, it's a joy because I have a deep love and affection for you, the summit. I love you. I love getting to serve you. Um, I really do believe that I, I have the awesome responsibility and great privilege and great joy to serve alongside what I believe to be one of the greatest ministry teams in America and our kids and student ministry leaders that we have who get to serve alongside of you in the trenches of ministry serving kids and students all over Raleigh-Durham, approximately 2,500 of them to be exact. It's a great, great joy uh, to be here at this place at this time in history. A few things that I want you to know about me, all right? Number one, I absolutely love my job, okay? Some of you guys wake up on Monday morning and you're like, I don't want to go to work today. Not me, baby. I roll out. I'm ready to roll. I roll in on a Monday morning and I'm just as loud in the office as I am right here. And all the staff said, amen, okay? Yes, yeah, right. Yeah, amen. Uh, man, I, I love being, number two, I love being a, a dad. Um, I love being a husband. Um, basically what you need to know is I just love life, okay? I, I love living. I love living life, man. I'm like, hey, it's a new day every day. God's mercy's new. Here we go. Let's go. What are we having for lunch today? Let's go, baby. That's me, okay? And then number three, I realize now at the age of 35, as the great theologian Toby Keith has once been stated, saying that I'm not as good as I once was, okay? The reason I know that is because this past week I was on an airplane traveling uh, back from Florida to Raleigh-Durham. And I stood up, and my hip straight locked up on me, okay? Locked up. And so uh, I had to go to the physical therapist on Thursday. I've been doing banded exercises right there. Okay, I did them in the green room before I came out today. The reason you need to know that is because if I go down on this stage, it's because I stood up too quickly, and I need somebody to come up here and preach my notes. Sound good? Awesome. All right. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in the first 16 verses. I want to encourage you, if you don't already do this, obviously we'll always have the verses for you on the screen, but I do want to encourage you to bring uh, a copy of the Scripture with you. Uh, maybe you pull it up on your phone. I'll encourage you, as you're doing that, to put your phone on, on uh, airplane mode so you're not tempted to text everybody about what's going on for the rest of the day. Okay, So you can just lean in for the next few minutes and, uh, and really dive into God's Word. Now, If you're here uh, and you have ever applied for a job or you are currently working in a position, hopefully at some point you have seen the job description for the task at hand. Some of you right now are like, that is why I have been so frustrated for the last five years of my job. I have no idea what exactly I'm supposed to do, okay? A good good job description really is, is composed of three essential components, all right? Number one, it's the big overview, all right? What this thing is all about, what this job is all about, what the company is all about, okay? It kind of gives you the big picture. Number two, the qualifications that it takes to carry out the job, right? What, what does your degree look like? Do you need a degree? What are, do you need to have Microsoft Word, Excel, which I believe is from the devil because numbers are from the devil, right? It's all confusion, right? Um, what, what are the basic components that you need to actually carry out the job? What are the qualifications? And then number three, hopefully the job description will actually tell you what you're supposed to be doing, right? Your actual objectives and tasks at hand. 
Now, in the book of Ephesians, I believe that Paul actually lays out for us, in a lot of ways, a description for the life of the church, for the life of the believer. In chapter 1, you get this big picture about what it's all about to to know God and to be known by God. In chapter 2, he lays out for us what our qualifications are as believers. And it's interesting because it's countercultural. It's actually not what you and I are able to achieve, but it's what God has achieved on our behalf through Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not from ourselves, it's not our works, but it's the gift of God so that no man can boast. And then in the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians, what you get is you get the task at hand. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to unpack what it looks like for us to walk and to live out as believers this task that is at hand before us to live in the world as the church. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Now, the book of Ephesians is what we call a prison epistle, meaning it was a letter written by Paul, who was also known as Saul. It's a letter that he wrote, wait for it, Rocket Science Bible right here, 101. He's writing it from a Roman prison. Okay, so when he says, I am a prisoner for the Lord, he literally means that, okay? He's in jail, and he's saying, I know what it, what it takes. I've experienced it. I'm in jail, all right? And then he uses a word right here. He uses the word, therefore, okay? Now, when you see the word, therefore, what he's doing is he is connecting the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians to the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is hinged on the word therefore, which now begins the transition into 4, 5, and 6. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is all about right knowledge of God, right understanding of God. We love that, don't we? We love the right knowledge, right understanding. And Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is now all about right practices. Don't love that one so much, all right? Let's keep reading. He says this, Be completely humble and gentle, Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, what Paul begins to say here is that we, as believers, should begin to now walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that we have received, worthy of the gospel. But the way that he lays that out, he says, the way that we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel is actually through unity in the body. Nothing declares to each other and to an unbelieving world the beauty of the gospel more than our unity within the church. I don't think I need to spend too much time on this, okay? Because if you were here last week, you, you remember Pastor J.D. got in the ring. He climbed up to the top rope on the top buckle, right, flexed his biceps, jumped off the top rope, and elbow dropped us all on the beauty, beauty of unity within the body. I don't, I don't need to go into that too much this week, but what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 4, is just reiterating what he's already said in Ephesians chapter 3. That when we are united in the body, we beautifully reflect the unity of God that is divided on so many things. And unity in the body actually informs who we are and how we live. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Let's keep reading. But if you underline things in the Bible, I want you to underline this next phrase. But To each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led the captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, 
what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? Let's keep going. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Okay, if you're anything like me, you were cool with the first couple of verses. You're like, bro, I'm tracking. But now we're talking about ascension, descension, higher than the heavens, angels. What in the world is going on? All right, good news. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of this. Okay, by the way, can we just give a shout out to my man Cliff? All right, man, I, I, when, I was in, when I was in high school, um, I had to write an ode. We were tasked with writing an ode to the person that we admired the most in life. I was like, it's a no-brainer. So I got, went home, got down to it, probably the first homework assignment I ever completed, and uh, got up in front of the class the next day, wrote that ode. You know who I wrote it to? Cliff from Cliff's Notes, thanking him for all the great things he's done for high school students all across the country, okay? Cliff Notes, man, that's where it's at. Some of y'all don't even know who Cliff is. That's all right. All right, so what he's doing, the Cliff Notes version, all right? Paul, right here in in Ephesians chapter 4, is actually quoting from Psalm 68 as it relates specifically to the victory that we have in Jesus. You see, what he's doing is he's, he's beginning to actually summarize it in his own words. He's not quoting it directly, but he, he basically puts it in his own Pauline flavor, okay? And the reason that's important is because Psalm 68 is a song of victory, it's a psalm of victory. Now, historically and typically what would happen is when a king and the people would go out to war, the king would come back, okay, they would come back and they would celebrate the, the victory of the people, right? And then the spoils of war would be brought back showing what they possessed and what they now had because of the kingdom that they were a part of. And in Psalm 68, you actually get this picture of the covenant of the ark, the ark of the covenant going up on the mountain before the people, literally, that's where they thought the presence of God was dwelling. They were going up, God was ascending up into a place of victory. Now, can I just remind us of something this morning? If you're sitting on your hands, you better start engaging right now, okay? Let me just remind you of something. King Jesus came. He came down to the earth. And not only did he come... But he lived the life that you and I were supposed to live, and he did it beautifully, and he did it perfectly. And then guess what? He went to that old, wretched, rugged cross, and he bore the weight of our sin on that place. And guess what? All of that breath and all of that blood that was pumping through his body ceased. He died. And he went into the grave. But the hope of the church does not stop in that grave. No, it does not. Listen, the resurrection of Christ is what informs everything about us. Jesus looked at death on the third day and said, boom, curb stomped its teeth right in the face, resurrected, and now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, and the spoils of his victory are given to his church. That is the beauty of the gospel. Let's keep reading. I'm about to pass out. All right. <laughs> it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists. Some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, specifically in this passage, what Paul is getting at is he's getting that God has called and equipped leaders for the church. But he hasn't just done that for the sake of leadership. He's done it for the sake of the people. You see, our heart's desire, our passion as the leaders of the church is not to build a great monument to ourselves. It's not to build even a great monument to Jesus. It's to take the calling and the passion that God has put inside of us to do something. And you know what that something is? It's to equip 
you, the people of the body of Christ, to equip you to carry out the ministry. To take your gifts and your passions and to take it and to go into all the world for the sake of the unity within the body and for the sake of the world. Let's keep reading. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants. Okay, there's this idea of like this childlike behavior. He says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there. But rather, keep going, let's keep reading. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Paul says, all of these things are given so that the body of Christ may, be, may grow up. Like, we're not there yet. Like, literally, the ceiling is the roof, okay? That's a Michael Jordan joke for you guys right there. Brought it right there. Boom. Okay. He gives you this picture of like a, a little child with this massive crown on his head. Right? And it's all wobbly. You ever seen a kid? It's all wobbly. It's like way too big for his head. And what he's saying is grow into what you've been called to. Grow into it. You can no longer stay in your childlike ways. You have to grow up. Four things today. I want us to see about what it looks like for us to grow up in the beauty of the gospel of the one who called us. If you're taking notes, write them down. Number one, the gospel creates a changed people. The gospel creates a changed people. Now, I think it's super important because I never want us to lose sight of this. Because if we don't understand point number one, we don't understand Ephesians chapter four, five, and six. We get it all out of whack, okay? Let, let's, just, let's just press pause for a second and think about the 30,000-foot view of this, of this context in this passage. Who's writing it? Paul, who is also known as Saul. All right, before Saul became a believer in Jesus, what did his life look like? Exactly. He was a first-century jihadist. His life calling was to literally, he, he was passionate. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 says, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's people. Like, his nostrils were flared with anger and wrath and fury. The man's life was all about bringing a stop to the movement of God and causing division among the people as they scattered. But wait a second. Isn't he the same guy that's writing from a Roman prison, telling the church to stay united and to press on and to keep pursuing Jesus? How in the world does that happen? How do you go from being a murderer to an apostle? How do you go from being a murderer to a church planner? How do you go from being a murderer to someone who's encouraging the body to keep pressing on? It's because we serve a God who is in the business of redemption. Now, uh, if you're anything like me, you need pictures, okay? Algebra, terrible. Geometry, pictures. All right, I love pictures, all right? Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, I, I want to do this here real quick, okay? I do this a lot with our students, and I, I want to do it with you guys. I want you to make sure you, you get the beauty of what's going on here. Now, imagine in these two chairs, I'm going to introduce you to two people, okay? Over here, we have Jesus, okay? And then on this side over here, we have humanity. But rather than just saying humanity, I want you to put your name here. All right, so Jesus and Jason. You guys got that? All right, now I'm going to introduce you to both of these people according to characteristics that we find of them in the Scripture. All right. Hey, guys, this is Jesus. 
He is loving, compassionate, holy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's righteous. He's merciful. He's just. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Son of God. All right, I could go on for a long time about this. All right, that's a beautiful picture being painted, isn't it? All right, let's just slide on over here, okay? Humanity. Now, Genesis chapter 1 gives us this idea that we were created to know that God. We were created to know his loving kindness and his mercy. But at some point along the way, we said, eh, I think we know a better way. So after Genesis chapter 3, you get this wretched picture of what humanity looks like. We're murderers. You're like, I ain't never killed anybody. The seed of murder is deep in the heart of every person. We're liars. I mean, I lied to somebody yesterday, guaranteed, okay? Probably happened. We're idolaters. We're slanderers. We will talk bad against anybody as long as it puffs ourselves up. We're self-centered. Don't believe me? Let me just get you and your best friend together. I'm going to take a picture of you, put it on Instagram. Right, before I put it on Instagram, who are you looking at? You. Making sure that it's okay for all the world to see, okay? We're self-centered people. We're elitists. Do you know what that means? That means we think that we're better than other people because of the type of car that we drive or the neighborhood that we live in. That means we think we're better than them because my mom and dad bought me a certain car and that guy over there drives a beat-up Toyota Corolla. Right? Or, or maybe we think we're better than somebody within our business and organization because we hold a higher leadership position than someone else. We do this. We puff ourselves up all the time. We're racist. We think we're better because the color of our skin. You don't believe me? Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. People are always encouraging people to love each other no matter what the color of their skin is. Okay, do you guys see the difference between these two right here? All right, over here, you got the beautiful, wonderful, holy, loving Jesus. Over here, you got a completely different picture of humanity. And here's the thing. Since man was kicked out of the garden, all of humanity, doesn't matter what tribe, tongue, nation, or language you come from, we have tried to develop ways or religions of trying to close this gap between us and God. We, we do it through morality. We even do it through cultural Christianity. Maybe it goes a little something like this for you. Ah, I served a refugee this week, or I talked about it on Facebook. Go this way, right? I came to church this week on the weekend of one of the biggest games of the year, right? Oh yeah, God must really love me, right? I treat my wife or my husband fairly. I love my kids well. It's great. Surely I'm starting to close this gap. But then what happens? You get busy with life. You never show up to church, right? And you're like, oh, I did so good last week. Now all of a sudden I'm further back. Or you show up to the workplace and you cussed. And you're like, God really hates me now. Okay, here, here I go this way, right? And it's this constant, endless cycle of back and forth, back and forth. Three steps forward, one step back. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Is that God looks at us from his place, and he doesn't look at us and say, look at those pansies trying to close the gap. Ha, 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 They'll never make it. Actually, that's what he says, they'll never make it. I've got to come to them. And so what the scripture teaches is that God looks at us in our pitiful state of rebellion and says, I'll close the gap for them. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Literally what that means is at the cross, Jesus took the penalty of our idolatry. He took the penalty of our racism. He took the penalty of our rebel hearts upon himself. And now when God looks at us, if we have been united in Christ, you know what that means? He no longer sees the old you. He sees Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's how God takes a man who was a murderer and now looks at him and said, my son with whom I am well pleased. The gospel, listen, the gospel is all about redeeming a people who cannot redeem themselves. And that, listen, that is where we as the church stand united. We stand united as a people. You don't stand united by yourself. You stand united with the thousands of people around you every weekend at the Summit Church in this confession that Jesus is Lord. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and it is out of this place that we now live. That we don't have to work our way to God. God came to us, and now there's freedom to live out the beauty of the gospel every single day. No matter what, we will not waver, church. You know why? Because the world wavers on all types of things. Policies, politics, procedures, fads. Don't believe me? Some of you in the older generation, were here. you were doing workout tapes to Cindy Lauper. Now, half of y'all don't even know who Cindy Lauper is, right? You're showing up to CrossFit gyms and stuff like that. It's a whole different, every, it, things change all the time. You know who doesn't waver? Jesus. You know who should not waver? The church. United in the beauty of the profession that Jesus Christ is Lord. God is in the business of changing people. Not tweaking you, redeeming you. Number two, the gospel equips us for the journey. Now, you'll remember in this passage specifically, Paul is addressing the leaders of the church, but he's addressing the leaders of the church in this specific area of leadership to do something. And that is to equip you, the saints, to use your gifts for the sake of each other and the kingdom of God. That means that if God has called the leaders to equip you, that means you have a gift that is to be used and you have a task in which you should use it. You have been given a gift for the sake of the body. All people, everyone, if you have believed in Christ, you, are in, you have been given a gift by the Holy Spirit. Look what he says. But to each of us, not a select few, not like the awesome pastoral team, but to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up. Literally, that means... I need you to use your gift in my life. We need each other to use each other's gift. My kids need you to use your gift to speak into them the beauty of the gospel. Literally, I am better because of you and I am less without you. If you have been redeemed and saved by God, you've been given a gift. And if you're not using it to serve the body, we are not as complete as we should be. By the way, to the 750 of you that are currently leading, loving, and investing in our kids and our student ministries on the weekends and throughout the week in small groups, thank you. Thank you for using your gifts to pour out into the next generation. We need your gifts. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for why? The common good. Now there's three different places in the New Testament that Paul lists out what the spiritual gifts are. He does it in Romans 12, he does it in 1 Corinthians 12, 
And he does it here in Ephesians chapter 4. They include things like hospitality, mercy, serving, generosity, exhortation, evangelism, leadership, vision, faith, prayer. So how in the world do you know what your gift is? How how do we know what that looks like? All right, so this past week in our small groups, our team absolutely killed it by going through what spiritual gifts were. If you were there, you've already went through this. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. We're just going to hash that back out right here, okay? Here's what you need to know. We believe that you can know what your spiritual gift is by not taking a Myers-Briggs test. You can know it through some pretty simple ways, okay? And those three ways, uh, these three things overlap. It's what you're passionate about, what you're gifted in, and what others affirm in you. Let's look at this, okay? What you're good at, that's your ability, right? What, What has God naturally gifted you in, all right? I love to stand up in front of people and to talk. I'm a talker. I love to talk, right? I love to lead. I love to persuade, right? I love to coach. In fact, this week, I will have yelled at six, seven, and eight-year-olds on the baseball field because I love to coach and I love to persuade them to follow the, follow the way that I'm leading you to, okay? That's like, that's something I'm naturally good at, all right? And then you've got what you love, your passion. Like, what, what burns in you? What things in you has God put in your, just in your gut that you want to see happen for the kingdom of God? What keeps you up at night? Does anything keep you up at night? Is there anything that stirs your soul? And then there's what others are affirming about you. Literally, remember Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, he's writing to the who? The church. And he's encouraging them to use their gifts. People, listen, people call out in each other what they see God equipping you with. And where your, your passions collide, what your, where your abilities collide. And by the way, it's not always, God doesn't always use what you're naturally good at. You know why? Because he's God and he loves to show off his glory. Some of you are terrible at something. I'm terrible at a lot of things. And God will use that and make that your spiritual gift just to show off that it's not about us. Okay? So he'll take the things that we're good at. He'll take the things that we're passionate about. And he'll take the things that other people are affirming in us. And where those three things converge, we call that your spiritual gift. I'll go as far to say, listen, I've built my life around what my spiritual gifts are, ministry. Most of you won't do that, but you need to have your spiritual gift as an essential piece of your life. Because if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, how can you use it to build up the body of Christ? And if God has given the church gifts to carry out his mission and you don't know where your gift is, I'd be as bold to say you're not actively engaged in the mission of God. Listen, that's the beauty of why we have small groups. It's a place for us to come together where the body of Christ can join together in a living room somewhere, and the body can use their gifts to speak about people's passions, to affirm their calling, and to build you up in unity and in love. We need your gifts. I need your gifts. My kids need your gifts because I am better because of you, and we are less without you. Get in the game. Number three. The gospel calls you to grow up. All right, let's read this real quick. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth, and by the waves, and blown here and there. But, keep reading, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. For from him the whole body, joined together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. All right, I need y'all to buckle up really quick, okay? I need you to put your big boy pants on, your big girl pants on, just for a second. By the way, let me make this disclaimer. If you're here and you're a first-time guest, this is not directed at you, okay? If you're here and you're not a believer, 
you're a skeptic, you're like, I don't know, this might be the very reason why you are skeptical about the church. We need people to grow up. We live in a culture where participation trophies are handed out for simply showing up, and people are called snowflakes because they're breathing. And we need people, listen, we need people to stop showing up, and we need people to start growing up. And it's easy for us to shout amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. We need to stop giving those kids trophies and telling people that they're awesome. But who's handing out the trophies? Us. Why? Because we love to pamper each other. We love to pamper one another because we love to be pampered too. And listen, when we pamper each other, we halt the work of God in our hearts. Some of us are pampering each other in all the wrong things. Now, I'm going to step on your toes here for just a second, and I'm sorry that I'm not sorry. <laughs> and I'm not angry. I want, I want you to hear this as a shepherd leading you. I've been in student ministry for 13 years. I've had a lot of conversations with middle and high school students over the years. And I've walked away from some of those conversations with kids that are following Jesus. And I'm like, they are idiots. <laughs> like, how do they keep making that same dumb mistake? And then I just chalk it up to, man, they're just new, they're new believers. Some have been walking with Jesus for five or ten years. Man, they're just kids. But then I realized something. That for a lot of them, what they're doing is they're simply patterning their life after their parents, who are still acting like middle school boys and girls. Guys, listen, this is, this is serious business. What I'm telling you today, I want you to listen very closely to this. If you want to look like Jesus, you've got to start growing up and stop conforming to the world around you and start walking towards Jesus. Listen, we love, we love, we love the first three chapters. Some of you are like, oh man, my theology, my theology won't allow me to like get out there and do works for the kingdom because man, we love the first three chapters. It's not that you have a deep theological conviction that doesn't allow you to work. If you read the scripture, you know that God calls you to work. He calls you to grow up. It's simply that you're a lazy bum. Get in the game. Paul is referring to Ephesians chapter 4 as something that has been common all throughout history for the people of God. Grow up. Stop remaining the same. You've got to move towards righteousness. Joshua chapter 22 verse 5 says this. Love the Lord your God. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his commands. Hold fast to him. Serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 6. Leave your simple ways. Grow up and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. It doesn't matter where you are in this journey, okay? It doesn't matter if you're a new believer. You're just jumping in the shallow end and you're like, man, I'm just new to this. Like, I'm getting the milk. I'm like, a, I'm like a spiritual baby. That's good. You need that. And it doesn't matter if you're in the deep end. You've been walking with Jesus for 20, 30 years, and you are crunching and munching on that tomahawk steak from the Angus barn, baby. You want the meat, okay? It doesn't matter where you are. The goal is the same. You've got to keep growing. We've got to keep moving. The goal is maturity in Christ. Now, um, I'm a parent of three kids, and we take our kids in for checkups. We love growth charts, don't we? We freak out when we see growth charts. We're like, oh my gosh, my kid is way behind. What's going to happen? I think, pictures, remember this. I, we, some of us, we need, a, we need a little bit of a diagram for how we measure growth. All right, this is going to be a little overwhelming for some of you. I'm going to give you seven really quick things. We'll put them up on the blog this week. Don't worry about it. Just listen to them, okay? 
Here's a, here's a good diagnostic for us as we think about this. All right, number one, what is your thought life like? Are you maturing more into the image of God by the way that you're thinking? Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What things are you thinking on daily? Number two, what's your behavior and attitude like? (laughs) Are you living, as Galatians 5 says, according to the flesh, or are you being controlled by the Spirit? How are you reacting to things? Are you becoming patient, bearing with one one another in love, as Paul says here? Or are you stubborn all the time and you have no patience with anyone? Number three, how are you spending your time? Ephesians chapter 5, Pastor J.D. talked about this last week. We need you to engage in the church. Where does the majority of your time go? Building up a career for yourself or building up the kingdom of God or building up your home for the glory of Jesus? What about number four? What is the effect of the company that you keep on your life? Notice I said the effect of the company you keep. We're not after a holy huddle here, okay? If you're a believer, you need to have friends that don't love Jesus, Okay? You have to. But what is the effect that they're having on your life? How are they persuading you? What kind of things are they pushing you towards? I love the book of Proverbs. So practical and beautiful. Proverbs 13, 20. Walk with the wise and you will become wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Some of us are listening to the fools. Number five, what do your ambitions reveal? Matthew chapter 6. What are you pursuing with your life? Are they growing increasingly more like things of the kingdom of God or more like the things of ourselves? When was the last time we opened the word and actually had time in the word? Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, the psalmist says, How does a young man keep his way pure? How do I grow up in Christ? Great question. They answer it. By living according to your word. I've hidden your word deep in my heart that I might not sin against you. Guys, if we're not in the word, we're probably not growing into the likeness of Jesus. Get in the word. And then, number seven, how often are we repenting? I think this is key. Because it's God's kindness that the Scripture teaches us that leads us to a place of repentance. It's not His wrath. He's not angry. It's His goodness and love and mercy towards us that He won't allow us to stay that way anymore. If we are not repenting of sin because we are a sinful people, sin will begin to take root. And if we're not repenting, that means sin somewhere is starting to take root in our hearts. When was the last time in your prayer time you just fell down before the Lord and said, Lord, I am a sinful human being. I repent. Repentance is a sign of maturity. One of my favorite passages in the scripture is the book of Psalms chapter 1, Psalm 1. It's a passage of scripture that I pray over my kids, my family, and our church every single day. The psalmist says this, how, I mean, uh, uh, blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. There's a blessed man in life, and he does not conform to the patterns of this world. But he says, he is like a tree, right? He is the man, the man, the blessed man, is the one who plants his roots, his life, deep in the streams of God's word. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. You know why we don't like the imagery of trees with the Christian life? Because we live in a microwave generation where everything needs to happen now. And we get frustrated. And you know what the scripture tells us? That's like the weed. That when, when the storms of life come, when the wind blows, it's gone tomorrow. The sun scorches it up. We need believers that are willing to, t- to do what it takes to take the hard road to plant the roots deep in the streams of God's word so they will bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit and grow up into the crown that has been placed on their head. Number four, 
The gospel changes people who change the world. You see, I believe this setup for Ephesians chapter 4 is actually found in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. This is what he says. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Aristotle says that the soul never thinks without a picture. What is the picture being painted for your life right now? Immeasurably more. What if God wanted to do immeasurably more in your life right now as you begin to think more about his love, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his compassion? What if he wanted to do more in you right now than what you're currently settling for? What if, Summit Church, he wants to do more in your homes than what you can even begin to pray for? Immeasurably more. What if, Summit Church, God raised us up as a people that are united around the confession that God closed the gap on our behalf when we couldn't do it ourselves. And that is our God and we're not wavering. And he wants to do more than anything we could even conjure up through us as we use the gifts he's given us to build each other up, to grow into maturity. And when we grow into maturity, the world stands back and goes, what is going on there? And now we're being used for God and his mission for the sake of his name among all nations, immeasurably more. When we grow up, when we mature, we take the gifts that he's given us, we plant our lives deep in the word, we bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we unite, we use our gifts over one another, and God begins to do immeasurably more in RDU as it is in heaven. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your grace. It is sufficient for us. Your power truly is made perfect in our weakness. We are a weak and fragile people, and we need you to do your work in us, God. Father, I pray that we would see the beauty, that you closed the gap on our behalf. We could not do it. You did it. Thank you. Thank you that you took us from our rebel ways and you made us sons and daughters through Jesus. God, I pray that we would be a people that would grow up using our gifts to serve one another and to serve our community for the sake of your name. God, help us to realize the beauty of each other, that we are better because of each other and we are less without them. For your name and for your glory, we pray and believe these things. And all of God's people said, amen.